0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.
1: I'd like to begin, of course, by welcoming you. Um, I'm Paul Newton, and this is a seminar in our Current Issues in Assessment series, which is hosted by the Cambridge Assessment Network Division. Last year, the National Education Trust um, published a report in their Counterblast series, and the report was entitled Assessing Assessment, Politics or Progress? And the counter series is intended to, and I'm quoting here, uh, uh, challenge current orthodoxy to champion best practice and to stimulate debate. And I thought with an intention like that, uh, specifically in the domain of assessment, uh, it made a really good candidate for one of these seminars. And Tony Ashmore, the first author of the paper, has very generously agreed to come along and lead that seminar today. Uh, Tony is a policy advisor at the National Education Trust, and he has a PhD in chemical education. And he's also taught both in schools um, and in the higher education sector. He's also worked as a Director of Education and Qualifications in a major professional body. And all of that, I think, um, makes him pretty well qualified to talk about this kind of stuff. So welcome, Tony. It's great to have you here. And we do hope that you can provoke a good um, high-level debate today. Um, Tony's going to provide a short introduction to the session um, on the overhead. Um, and then we'll give you a few minutes to discuss amongst yourselves uh, your thoughts emerging from uh, the, the presentation, and to formulate some thoughts as to discussion issues that we can take forward, and then we'll move into the discussion proper. So uh, at this point, I think I'd like to hand over to Tony and to welcome you again. Thank you very much, Tony.
2: Thank you, Paul, for the invitation to come here and, I, and, and thank you really for, for, the, for the bravery of the invitation because, as you'll see, what I have to say pokes a bit of a stick at the business model and, and, and I hope people won't take this personally in, in, in the room. And I'd also like to think I'm, I'm fairly brave coming here to, to, to present this because, as uh, Sue Durham, my erstwhile colleague at the Royal Society of Chemistry, said, well, I'll come and maul as well. So... Um, my co author for this particular counterblast is Malcolm Trobe, of, who's Dir- policy director of the Association of School and College Leaders, the, the, the head teachers and principals or, uh, union. And the publication arises out of an expert seminar, which is, uh, uh, as you heard, we held about a year ago. And that brings me to the disclaimer. What I'm going to say does not purport to represent the views of the Association of Schools and College leaders. Indeed, it would be surprising if their thousands of, of head teachers and school leaders all agreed with everything I had, had to say. Our purpose is to stimulate debate. So the contents of the talk, really in four sections. I'm going to look at what we consider to be good about assessment in general, what we think are the downsides, the bad. We'll have a few words to, to say about what we term the assessment industry, of which uh, Cambridge assessment is, is part, and then some suggestions as to a way forward to a more promised land. So that's the, that's the structure. So we start with the, the good and uh, really a statement of, of the obvious, that assessment is key to learning. Teachers need to assess, they need to know what their students know, what their students don't know, what they can do and what they can't do. And students themselves need to know. So assessment is, is, is fundamental. And at the end of any given process, the receiver, the next teacher, the next college, the next employer, needs to be able to rely upon the assessment judgments that are, are made. So these are, these are givens. Assessment, as we currently have it, is the key driver, I would suggest, of the curriculum. It identifies within a given curriculum what's important because it, it, it assesses, it, because it focuses assessment. Or, to put it another way, it guides the student to what the, what the person who constructed the assessment thinks is important. Assessment has been a key driver of improvement in the education system. And we've seen that over a large number of years. A need is identified, for example, to enhance numeracy in the primary phase. So we introduce a suite of tests that raises the profile of numeracy. uh, Behaviour adjusts. The behaviour of the system of teachers and of, of youngsters adjusts. Assessment is also a key driver of the self-belief of um, students because it does shape their lives. The outcomes of assessment does shape their lives going forward. And this, unfortunately, is irrespective of the appropriateness of the measure that was used to conduct the assessment. The outcome sticks, whether it was a wonderful method of assessment and it accurately describes what that person can or can't do or perhaps not quite so good. As a policies tool, assessment has done a number of very good things. It's led to a common curriculum entitlement, the national curriculum driven by the assessments that are associated with it, and with that has brought a greater opportunity to students. Uh, schools can no longer not offer particular things to youngsters. It, Um, schools can no longer not provide physics for their girls and biology for their boys, which was the case decades ago when I was a youngster. And and I would argue that assessment has largely driven these changes. It has led to increased attainment, at least as measured by the external assessments, but I I would hold to the notion that, that, that... that in those things that are measured and where there is focus there has been an increase in attainment and it is I think undoubtedly led to greater accountability of teachers and institutions if 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 a teacher's class is consistently um, underperforming it becomes stark with the assessments that are carried out and because of the way in which institutions are accountable things have to be done it's very much harder to hide underperformance of teachers and of institutions. So a number of benefits that the current approaches to assessment have brought. Now I come to the however bit. As a nation, we really like assessments, whether it's stars for the health service, Ofsted, league tables or whatever. And we have... a. a, a, really almost a blind trust in the results of these assessments and the assessment industries that it, are that it, that, that used. That not only newspapers and politicians quoting league tables, even, I think, educated adults who, at an intellectual level, uh, understand all the frailties and, 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 and the possible areas in measurement, nevertheless look at a league table and take a great deal of notice of that with respect to the education of their their children. We have an alarming, I think, uh, tendency to reduce complexity to a single grade, and we particularly like numbers because it enables us to rank. And when we rank, we quite willingly, I think, ignore the uncertainty, even when the difference in rank... is much smaller than the the uncertainty itself. And this obsession with numbers allows us to indulge our fascination with with norm referencing. We can calculate an average and then we can try and require all our schools to educate all our children to be above average because, of course, all of our children are above average. And and, and the schools should educate them them that way. And, and, And so it was, I think, that... Um, the level four standard at Key Stage 2, when that was defined 20-plus years ago, was thought to be the attainment of the quote-unquote average child. It then became the target, and finally it becomes the expected level of performance. And I don't think that um, Darwinian selection works that quickly. So this... Reducing to a single number, I think, is a particular problem. So it's too often the case, also I think, that whilst we value what we assess, this sort of assessment and accountability culture tends to lead us not to assess always what we value because it's difficult to assess what we, what we value. In, in the primary school where I'm chair of governors, um, we have quite a rapidly changing... Population in terms of our social mix, our social, and, and we're getting rapidly many, many more children from challenging backgrounds. And what we want to do is to socialise these children, to, 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 to enable them to interact uh, better together. And so we, have a high, we place high stock on these sort of social, cultural values within the school but that isn't what we're measured on and while Ofsted will pat us on the head and say you're doing very well on this they say but you're only satisfactory because that's that's what the that's what the outcome of these tests are, are, are telling us so um, we have a concern over that I think assessment dominates school life according to the Association of Schools and College Leaders you'll know better than I whether this is accurate 30 million External exam papers are are sat each year. And in terms of the size of our population, hugely greater than in most other Western European countries. External exam papers. I'm not mocking assessment. It's the external part of that. And our schools incur about £700 million of direct costs because of this. Not, Not counting the additional costs of the time of the deputy head that was going to be employed but of the examinations coordinator who wouldn't otherwise be employed in the fees and all all, all the rest of it. And I reckon that if you start a youngster at the beginning of year 10 and they run to January and they do a suite of exams and they run to June and they do another lot and they do this over a four-year period, by the time they finish their A-level, they've taken about a school year out of those four years in order to, to be subject to the external assessment regime they're, they're assessed too. In my view, that 25% is rather too high. and I, mean, I think there has to be some, but it, it is rather too high and it leads to a series of sprints as far as the education system is is concerned, then some sort of stressful examination activity and then if, it's, if it's the summer, it's a... and then the pick-up the, the following, following year. So I think there is a domination... Of an undue domination of school life with the current regime. And we use assessment to serve a confusion of purposes. All these purposes, I think, have validity in their own right. We've talked about formative assessment, assessment for learning to inform teaching. We do need a summative assessment, and we do need confidence in the grade that's awarded and the certificate that the youngster gets. Very important. And it is necessary to use assessments to sift young people to go, for example, into university. There does need to be a confidence in, in, in what's going on there. We use assessments of students for institutional accountability, and I've talked about ranking performance. And we use government uses assessment to develop public policy, it, rightly needs to know what, on average, students know about this, that or the other, what they can do to inform policy development. The problem is that a given assessment often serves a multiple, multiple purposes and that tends to compromise the value for, a, for the given purpose. So we use an assessment for summative purposes, for summative assessment that's used for institutional accountability and also as a basis for public policy, for example. So I think as I'll try and develop the thought later, this this multiple purposes leads to confusion and it diminishes some of the value. This is the tricky bit. On the back of this, a large assessment industry has developed... Many organisations involved, some large organisations involved. This assessment industry is fuelled by public funds that are intended for education. And and, and that, I hope I was able to show, is a large sum of money and the question mark, does it need to be that large, going all the way through to the uh, awarding bodies and so forth. A particular worry amongst particular awarding bodies is that the specifications and the assessments are increasingly allied to the commercial publishing interests of these organisations. So you get examiners publishing textbooks based on their own specifications. And that's a, bit, that's a bit incestuous there. And one gets the sort of feeling that, no, we can't change the specification for this for the next three years because we've just published the latest edition of the textbook. Well, um, this is children's education we're talking about here. So I think there's a conflict of interest that has grown in some quarters there to the extent that we can't ignore it. There is a tendency for parts of the industry to succumb to hyperbole, and my pet um, hate on this is the constant use of the word Qualification. I think most of the assessments and most of the certificates that are awarded are not qualifications in the sense that that, 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 it, that person is now competent to do this, that or the other. It means that they've passed that particular assessment. And the, the drift from award to qualification, I think, is, um, is, is quite unfortunate. Um, but we've seen other examples of sort of um, the language becoming mangled. A consequence of what I have said up to now, I think, is that teachers, the professionals in our educational institutions, have been reduced to delivery agents for commercial publishing and certifying organisations. Taking the argument to the extreme, but I think the uh, the mean position has moved too far along that road. That the, the professionalism of the teacher has been somewhat, somewhat diminished. But awarding bodies, are repositories of huge expertise. There's a great deal of expertise in this room, in this organisation, and the other awarding bodies that can be hugely beneficial to the educational process. So, um, let's now try and sort of think about a way forward. And I think the way forward for, I think, any system is for the institutions within that system to be constantly improving. And the major institutions within the education system pre-19 are the schools and colleges. So it's about a system that enables these schools and colleges constantly to improve and, therefore enhancing and supporting the skills of the professionals within them, because that's the only way schools will improve if the teachers within them improve, get better, and they're better, better run. So if we want to improve the education system, I would suggest that notwithstanding the considerable improvements that have been brought about by assessment, some of them forced quite rightly on the education system, We need a shift in balance from that being the driver to driver within the system as a, a, a whole. But external agencies are largely responsible for the course planning and the assessment, including moderation and judgment that's going on. When I go to my GP, my GP carries out some assessments. But my GP makes the judgment, and tells me what's wrong with me. And, and, and we put that to an external agency rather too much within our schools and college system. So I would contend that because of that, professionalism is diminished, and what we want to do I think, is to enhance professionalism, enhance professional skills. So I think that that aspect is an aspect that needs challenging, needs altering a little, and one needs to look at the role, I think, in which this, the assessment industry has to play in helping that. And there is a role. So, way forward. Come back to the purposes of assessment, and I slightly altered the bit to the right of, of the dash. Classified still in the same five Ways formative assessment to inform the teaching and learning process, summative assessment to grade. And I said cert- certify might be in my bonnet about qualifications, but we do need grades. We do need certification. Youngsters have to take something with them that that the outside world values and understands. There still is a need to um, sift people, particularly for HE. And there needs to be ways of holding institutions to account and ensuring performance, not necessarily through numerical league tables, but there needs to be a way. And the government does need to develop public policy and it does need to know what the system, education system, is delivering. So I would argue that what we need to do is to try and disentangle these purposes and treat each as important and each on its own own merits. So let's do that now. I would contend that the, we need to develop the teacher as an assessor because the teacher is education's most valuable and costly resource. And there have been considerable... Um, enhancements of teachers' understanding of learning processes, and I think we need to take that further, and teachers becoming better at measuring the outcomes of of learning and diagnosing needs. It would be good, and I think it's very important, that some teachers really become experts in this. Uh, They become accredited, uh, chartered education assessor, so forth. These mechanisms are, are out there. So that within their institution, they can lead good practice in assessment. They can um, quality assure the assessments that their colleagues are carrying out internally. And they can, on a local basis, between primary schools or across phases of education, secondary to primary, um, spread good practice and are able to ensure that there is conformity in standard and these people form a pool of expertise that would be available to awarding bodies and more of that later so when it comes to assessment for learning and progress I think there should be a shift away from external towards internal assessment the school ..and the teacher taking responsibility for this. And there there are issues of quality assurance, which I've talked about previously and I'll talk about a bit more. That assessment should therefore focus rather more on the 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 stage the child is at rather than the age they happen to be at. Children do transfer schools at a particular age and they do need to take with them a record of their accomplishments. But there is no need, in my view, if um, a school feels that achieving um, level four in numeracy is important, why the school has to assess all of its children in an external manner, big bang, in May for that, when some children may well have attained that in midway through year five. Why shouldn't that simply be signed off midway through, through year five for that youngster? The assessment industry provides the tools and the training that teachers use, or should provide the tools and the training that teachers use to carry out assessments. It then becomes a supportive industry rather than a driving industry. Aside here, international primary curriculum defines a number of Domains. It, defi- it looks of course, about knowledge. It talks about skills, and it talks about understanding, and it talks about how these might be assessed. Knowledge being tested in its view, skills being observed, understanding being evaluated. That's 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 quite a a, a, a notion. And how would teachers do this? How 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 could one develop their skills to do this? Who should be developing their skills? To, to do this, and, and who's going to provide them with the instruments to do that? And I would suggest this is the assessment industry. This is where the expertise is. Come back off the aside. Assessment for certification. Certification is important. I think it's important when students move between institutions, phases of, edu- of school-level education, into higher education beyond I think it's also important, particularly in, in, in secondary education, where a major curriculum area is discontinued. Let's say a student gets somewhere along the line to 16 or whatever, stops studying science. I think their attainment at that point in science should, should be certified and, and it should be, be able to be relied upon Externally why it should necessarily be certified, why we should necessarily have this huge certification um, effort when all youngsters get to 16, I think is open to to, uh, question. With compulsory participation in education training to 18 shortly upon us and being um, reality for many, many youngsters what's so different about 16 why this huge um, emphasis on assessment at at age 16 why go through why stop everything go through a huge assessment in saying mathematics at the age of 16 if that student's going to carry on studying mathematics afterwards they and their teachers will know whether they are capable of coping with the mathematics course thereafter why stop sometime around about the beginning of May and then not start again until mid September in their study of, of more mathematics? It just doesn't seem to me to be logical. How would certification take place? Well, what form would it take? I would suggest a graduation certificate when you leave primary school or secondary school or whatever. And this certificate would be a page or two with a short. Guide. I think those from higher education will be, defi- will be familiar with the Diploma Supplement um, developed alongside the Bologna process, which explains hopefully in lay terms to the recipient of this certificate what actually it means, how they should try and interpret the measurements that are recorded on that certificate. There needs to be an external verification of that certificate and the external verification should be of the internal QA systems, And the certificates that are awarded as a result of that. And and, and, this exists. I think that that this practice that exists could be spread further across the system as a whole. And it would be the awarding bodies tasked to provide that external verification service alongside the sort of support um, services that I've talked about before. What about university entry? I think it should be an admissions process that's post-certification. And I would hope, and and, um, you'll know more about the timing of your business than than I do, if one follows through what we're advocating, then um, one doesn't have to wait until the middle end of August before that can really start in earnest, because grades happen to be known at that point. It can start earlier, and therefore the university system, hopefully, can still kick off for an autumn round some suggest the university system should be post entry should be post certification and that therefore university system should delay and work with the calendar year i think to put us out of step with the rest of the northern hemisphere could be pretty disastrous for that part of the education industry and it's not really feasible okay so assessment is used for the accountability of institutions well, institutions already publish information about the achievements and destinations of their students. The information they may publish about their achievements might be a little different under the world that we're advocating, but it, they, that would still happen and where the, the students go. Institutions are becoming, have become much, much better at self-evaluation, driven by the Osted process. The Osted process... ...focusing very heavily on the internal institutional self-evaluation. If that is published and it's published alongside the Auschwitz Inspection Report... ...which either verifies, validates rather, or otherwise, that self-evaluation... ...there is a lot of information, therefore, in the public domain... ...on an institution-by-institution basis. We have another a, a booklet published on this. So I'm not going to go into more detail... In that, but the detail of our thinking is there. For public policy, this is government in order that it it can develop its policies to shape and lead the education system. In addition to the published evidence, we would suggest HMI led reviews of specific issues. These these take place, They, they could be more of them, but expert judgments of the state of play. Of PSHE or English or physical education or whatever. And in term for attainment of youngsters, sample testing. I mean, the grey hairs in the, the room will remember the APU approach back in, in the 80s. Sample testing. It, it's not necessary to assess all, however many it is, 700,000 youngsters in a particular cohort to know how that cohort is, is performing. And therefore, that testing doesn't, therefore, have to impinge upon the whole of the educational process that the youngsters undertake. So, a future for the assessment industry. We're suggesting a remodeling to carry out the sort of applied research and development in assessment methodologies that it currently carries, carries out must be done it we one would look to it to provide quite a sophisticated range of tools for teachers to use for assessment purposes individual teachers devising individual assessments well you know they're the gps in the system you're the consultants you provide the expert tools Professional development for teachers to grow them as assessors, we would see very largely in your bailiwick. And that you would provide an external verification service so that when schools, colleges issue their certificates to uh, their students, these are quality assured through the services that you provide, but you're not necessarily directly conducting the examinations with all the students preparing just for those particular examinations. Well, I'd like to thank you for listening. As was said earlier, I hope that um, when there's a debate, it can sort of be a cross. It's not just question and answer because that'll be really quite sterile because I think there'll be a variety of opinions in the audience. Um, when you when you're, um, are asking questions or when you're discussing, don't just think as people from Cambridge assessment perhaps think about what you would like for your sons and daughters if you have sons and daughters from the education system and what sort of assessments you would like them to be uh, exposed to what sort of education system you would like them to have and and the role of assessment within within that so I think you've got two roles one's as experts but one is as we all are lay people thank you
1: Tony, thanks very much indeed for a presentation packed with provocative proposals. Um, I started to jot down some of those provocative proposals just to kind of get us into the spirit of things and and then I stopped because I ran out of paper. I I jotted down things like, uh, do we place too much trust in our examination results? Do our exams miss too much of what we value in the curriculum? Is there too much external assessment? Could we be assessing less? Are there too many purposes for which we put our examination results to? Um, If so, which do we throw out of the lifeboat? Um, Or do we assess even more? Or do we evaluate differently? Too much public money being given to Cambridge assessment? Are we, the industry, too heavily um, influenced by publication of textbooks? Have we deprofessionalised teachers? And um, I I could go on, but I think it's time for me to hand over to you. So let's open it up to the, the broader discussion. Simon, do you want to start?
3: Simon Niebus, Cambridge Assessment. Um, thank you for your talk. Lots of interesting points. I wanted to start, actually, by, by asking you a question because you've produced some figures about the cost of this system and, specifically, you've mentioned a figure of £700 million. Um, And I think it's quite important and interesting to contextualise that because we spend, um, I think, if I remember the last set of figures I saw correctly, about £80 billion a year on our school system. Um, and then you would have to add to that that, that the amount of money that's spent in FE and colleges to come to to a higher figure for um, what is spent on on educating people up to year 13. And and the question I have, in a sense, is if the figure of 700 million is is correct, and I'm sure it's roughly in the the right range, that is an order of magnitude of of less than 1%. Um, arguably to quality assure some elements of the, the system in a pretty important way, particularly in, the, in an international context where lots of other people have portable qualifications. And, and my question to you would be, what is the right amount to spend on, on quality assurance? And also, if we make some of the changes that you're... Um, proposing, it seems to me that actually all you'd be doing is displacing quite a lot of that money and the sort of um, quality assurance um, protocols and regimes that you're talking about in terms of HMI and self-certification and whatever, they actually would require very significant investment. I, it's not at all plain to me that you would end up spending less than 700 million once you did that. So, so, So far as the economic argument is concerned, I'm sort of slightly... Slightly um, well, I, I would be interested in your thoughts on what an appropriate level of spend on that sort of quality assurance is. Okay, the,
2: the reference to the money is a
3: QCDA
2: report of of twenty o eight. So it's that, that. So it's 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 from there. You may well be right that 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 sum of money is an appropriate fraction to be spent on assessment of of uh, students. Quality assurance and all that goes with that, but it, it, when it behoves I think us to look at any sum of 700 million, whether it's the totality of a spend or a fraction of a spend, <clears throat> as to whether it's giving the value for money, but also whether it's driving the right direction. So it may well be through the wash that 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 700 million is not diminished, but if more of, of a greater fraction of that is devoted towards teachers within schools carrying out quality-assured assessments within schools, I would suggest that we're devoting a greater proportion to the educational process and to the educational benefit of, of, of those young people. So I think it's more about how it's used rather than the actual sum. No, I don't. You won't be surprised that I don't have a number that says, ah, oh, yes, well, it should be 300 million. Not at all.
1: So it's about the use I want to give uh, priority to people who want to come in on the same um, point. So if you do, wave your hand. Otherwise, just stick it up if you want to introduce uh, a new topic into the debate. I'm looking for hands. Isabel.
4: I was just going to try to widen the discussion a little bit. You would have thought, in a way, from the discussion, that the only qualifications that, or exams or um, certification that young people take are ex- A-levels, GCSEs and t- tests, whereas there's a vast range of Absolutely. qualifications that people do. And the model for vocational qualifications is normally that there's a package of material that the awarding body provides. People register for qualification at the beginning of the course, not at the end, and there's a whole package of learning which they get. Um, and um, I was wondering where in your model um, the wider range of learning, I don't know what if, if you've inputted your thoughts to Alison Wolfe's study, but um, I think it may be that the, the, there's oddities about academic qualifications which are just different from the vast majority of the others. And um, if you look at the experience of young people in FE colleges, they're doing a, different, a whole range of types of assessment, not just A-levels or GCSEs, but usually mixing those with other types. So would that make for a, a richer model? And would your model of assessment benefit from learning some lessons from those?
2: Well, I think our model of assessment, in far there is a model of assessment, leans much more towards that, much more towards um, a mix of assessment protocols driven largely by the institution in which the, the, the student's studying. So we would say that, that those sorts of approaches are, in fact, uh, represent a model that we'd like to move much more towards?
4: I mean, one of the characteristics of that model is that all the teaching material, including the textbooks, is provided by the awarding industry. Um, that's what you get in a vocational qualification. You get a pack of stuff. Sure. And um, so there's much more curricular involvement and there's less of this hang-up about something bad, about awarding bodies
2: being involved in textbook production, for example. But I... Yes, and, and there there are considerable plus sides in awarding bodies providing the, the resource materials. But I do think that we are seeing in, uh, increasingly that the commercial interests of um, PLCs are uh, coming to dominate the interests of some students, some educational Institutions, and I don't, th- and I think that we're, we're, in some instances, I think that's moving in the wrong direction.
3: Can, can I again challenge that, or at least half challenge it? Because it's not for me to speak on behalf of PLCs. But uh, in the, if one again takes the um, awarding of academic qualifications in the school system, there are three big awarding bodies, and one of Isabel's former colleagues, I think, said much the same as you, but in slightly more colourful language, because he talked about it as being a corrupt. System With insider trading. And, and there are two observations I would make. Firstly, um, only one of the three awarding bodies has, has a link with a specific publisher and is in a position to produce tie-ups of the sort that you're um, talking about. So I think, it, you know, whatever happens in that particular instance, they only have 25% of the market. And I don't think you can make general statements about the awarding market as a whole based on the, the Pearson experience. And the second observation I would make is I've been doing this job for nine years, and one of the things that has perhaps been rather disappointing for me is that our market share is exactly the same as it was nine years ago, edXL's is the same as it was nine years ago, and AQA's is the same as it was nine years ago, to within a percentage point or two. So the argument that there's this great commercial battle going on and people are snaffling market share by these types of publishers actually is not borne out by the, the reality. And I think it's, it's, it, it, it troubles me in a sense that the, I think there are issues about the um, awarding system, uh, there, are, there, there are issues about the qualification system, but I think it seems to me very much a second-order argument that some of the sort of commercial types yes. within... You know, there is one um, big publishing group, Pearson, who, who are a big player in the education space generally, not just in, in qualifications. And, of course, as a result of their successful... Um, acquisition policy, they've managed to combine a number of different educational competencies, not just publishing and awarding. But I don't think they're really a model for what's going on within the, the sector as a whole. And I think um, some of the force of the argument about difficulties in the qualification system is, is lost if one tries to characterise it as, as sort of all being based around a, a Pearson model. Yes, I've I
2: deliberately not used the uh, colourful language <laughs> that you describe others as, as, as using, and I don't particularly want to play too heavily that commercial... Tie up because whether there's a commercial tie up or not, I think that what we have done is, is switch the balance too far away from teachers using their professional judgment in planning learning to teachers uh, largely delivering learning that others have planned and, 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 uh, for them. And I think that more fundamental issue is the issue of of greater concern because I think um, the sort of commercial things, one can deal with that through um, sort of commercial regulation. It's the rather more fundamental thing that, that that we're concerned about here.
3: I'll shut up after this. I'm sorry to... if I've been monopolising conversation, but I think, I, and I'm, I'm, I would stress, I'm not myself a former teacher, but one of the impressions I have is that um, one of the impacts of the new technology has actually been to liberate teachers, and they now, they now have access to a wealth and diversity and richness of material from yes, all okay. sorts of different sources, often provided on a non-commercial basis on the internet and and again it just seems to me that we get too hung up about published resources and let's face it most of the publishers have not much got much beyond in a a sort of digital sense simply converting um their 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 books into pdfs online but there's an awful lot of other stuff and it actually seems to me that teachers have a a richness of access to to materials and resources that they've never had before which i would imagine must be immensely liberating to them from a, a professional point of view and i think in fact the the awarding Body industry has done quite a good job in, in supporting that and and, and um, responding to it. And, and again, I, it just seems to me it is quite important to recognise that there are changes out there going on which we all have to respond to. And, and again, I, it just seems to me if one places too much emphasis on this this link with publishers publishing, is a very specific subset of the the basis on which teachers get resources, get material, on the basis on which everybody gets information and, and, and learning material. And I think one's gotta be very careful about, about sort of characterising that as and you talked about it driving the thing. I don't think I think simply because of the way technology is developing and the sorts of pressures publishers are under, they're not in a position to, to drive some of this stuff. Hey, there's a comment at the back I think. Um,
5: I'm a moderator for AQA and OCR, and I'd just like to come back at a very small scale to um, argue that you're absolutely right. EdXL may be the famous PLC, but I deal with a lot of teachers who are absolutely obsessed with the fact that Nelson Thorne's book says this and the syllabus says that, or that OCR recommend this group of contextual works, and why haven't they produced something like this? Teachers are being driven because they're so worried about the results to go for publishers' material. Now, obviously, English is only a tiny, tiny fraction, but I think to say that there is no connection between publishers and what's going on in the classroom, my impression is this far too much, and that it would be much better if your model was pursued. What I'm not clear about is how you verify it in a way that is not going to lead to even more bureaucracy and neurosis.
6: I'm Sarah McPhee, uh, Cambridge Assessment. Um, coming coming, sort of on from that point you've just made, um, we've seen with a lot of the new GCSE qualifications that uh, in some quite a heavy element is controlled assessment, which actually is internally assessed and then externally moderated. So not exactly the model that you were proposing, um, but perhaps somewhere on the line towards it. Um, Now, it's been my experience that centres and teachers have been extremely wary about that development um, precisely because of the the, the burden of time and administration within centres that it creates. So whilst I can see... Um, several benefits in in some of what you're proposing. Um, I'm not sure that it's something that would be immediately wholeheartedly welcomed uh, by all teachers and centres.
7: Hello, I'm Sylvia Green, Director of Research at Cambridge Assessment, and I'm very happy to hear that because that gives me a nice segue into <laughs> the research that we've done into controlled assessment, um, and I know you're aware of this research. Uh, We have been out into centres. We've looked at controlled assessment in the context of the diploma, and we're now looking at it in the context of GCSE. And it is very much the case that within schools, teachers have found it very difficult to set the standard, to find the standard, um, to be... Uh, confident in their own processes to moderate across centres, particularly in diploma situations, and also to be confident that the funding will be there next year for them to continue with the kind of investment that's necessary to introduce moderation and quality assurance measures um, in these in these new settings. A controlled assessment was brought in to replace coursework in many situations because of the problems that existed. For coursework, um, but it has highlighted a lot of problems for teachers in introducing this kind of system within their schools. And that was when it was on a small scale. If we scale it up, then I think the problems uh, may be bigger and more long term. Um, so that's just one example of where putting this into schools in even a limited way within part of a qualification raises a lot of problems for teachers who turn to the exam boards, and believe me, I interviewed a lot of them, and say, help us, what can you give us? Give us? Can we have more support? And so on. Um, so, you know, that would escalate. And I think it's, it's quite a complex matter to introduce these systems in reality into schools with hard-pressed teachers who are very, very heavily overworked to start with and then expect them to take on being expert assessors at the same time. Very, very tricky indeed. So it's a a complex matter, I think.
8: Hi, I'm Matt Haig from uh, Cambridge Assessment Research Division. Um, I've got a point um, relating to the deprofessionalisation of teachers as regards to assessment. But in fact, the assessment industry, and as an uh, an exam board, are employing 20,000 examiners who are based in schools and colleges are very closely linked to that. So we are in fact providing professional development in assessment to those people that are assisting with the setting of papers, the marking of papers, the moderating of papers. Um, And that, that number of people represents, if you talk about the assessment industry as a whole, we're saying that Approximately 90% of the assessment industry is actually sitting in schools and colleges, marking papers, moderating papers, etc. I think that's worth remembering uh, when you talk about the deprofessionalisation of
2: teachers. Can I just make one or two comments and then discussion flow again? Um, I think some of the comments beg the sort of assumption that we need to do the amount of assessment that we do. And therefore, as we... Uh, If we had coursework assessment and we're not going to do that, we've got to replace it with something else. And it doesn't seem to me to be a given that we have to do what seems to me to be the large quantity of assessment that we do over and above the assessment that teachers would wish to do with their students to ensure that the learning was going along as it should. It's not clear to me why, and I take entirely Isabel's point about Youngsters who, who are not on academic programmes, but for example, youngsters who are on academic programmes, it's not clear to me why GCSE is significant to them now, if the large number of them are going to go on to further studies for A-level, particularly in in the subjects that they wish to continue studying for for A-level. So I think we need to question the amount of assessment. That we, we do as part of the overall burden of, of the teachers. And I think the point, another point that was made about teachers finding it difficult to, to set the level and the moderation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think reinforces the argument that w- w- we're trying to put forward is that teachers need to be helped to be better at that because that's so fundamental to, their, to the teaching and learning process.
1: Uh, you can probably hear from my accent that I didn't take GCSEs or A-levels. And... Um... Here I am. So, Unsuccessful. I apply- yes, <laughs> I did make it through my master's degree. Um, and I've always asked people, uh, wh- why do you do this? And nobody's been able to, to answer me. And, and thank you for being the first person I've met that said, this is unnecessary. Why do we put our young people here through this? So, maybe that's not what a lot of us want to hear. <laughs>
6: This is this is sort of less of an opinion or comment and more of a question. Uh, you, you were saying that one of the reasons why uh, some sort of assessment and certification might be necessary would be a move from one institution to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and 16 is a point at which many young people do yes. move from one institution to another. Yes. Uh, do you think that making assessment dependent on that move, Uh, say for example if someone were carrying on in the same institution it would be unnecessary, might have the unintended consequence of lessening movement and, and perhaps choice that young people would experience at that point because it could become easier to just stay in the school that they were in until the age of 18. That's
2: the trouble with policy, there are always unintended consequences. Aren't, aren't, aren't there I don't know is the answer to, to, to that question but I think what, what, what we're trying to drive out here is the the sort of ex the, the certification for external purposes should come at a point when that in, that individual needs it and if they happen to be moving on they need to take forward some verified statement of what they know and and can do And if it happens to be at 16, then it's at 16. If if it happens to be at 18, well, it's at at, at 18. But, yes, the the unintended consequences often one doesn't find out about until one causes them to happen.
0: I'm Alison Miles from Cambridge Assessment, and um, I started teaching in 1969, so I've seen quite a few changes in education in my um, long educational (laughs) career. And uh, basically... In the olden days, which was then, teachers did have this professionalism because they were, I am a geography graduate, oh yes, I do have to have a PGC, but most of them can manage without, and you could do what you liked with your subject because there was no national curriculum, and you could do what you liked with your subject at A level because the syllabuses, as they were called then, were absolutely microscopically thin and you knew that the examiners knew the subject and your kids would be writing fluently on whatever it was and they'd probably get good results, etc., etc. And so everything was completely different then. And everything is cyclical, we know. But in terms of the way things work now, the comment I made to somebody in my team last summer... Which um, the psychology qualifications manager and I said, when you go to an inset and they start banging on about resources and should they turn to page 53 in order to teach this bit of the spec, you just say you can teach exactly what you like, but and you can enter your kids for the exam. And if you've taught them the right things, they'll do well. Or it doesn't really matter, does it? Because the point is you're teaching them psychology. Most unhelpful, but actually. At the end of the day, that's what we probably have in the backs of our minds with professional teachers who are teaching subjects. I have very limited experience, personally, of vocational teaching, so I can't comment on that. But I think that
2: we need to sort of get a balance and perhaps we've moved too far in one direction. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a similar vintage, and, and, and I was one that didn't have the PGC. Um, but, yes, it is the, it's the balance. And our contention is that we need to bring the balance more back to the, to the teacher because further improvement in our education system is going to be dependent upon improvements in institutions and improvements in the teaching forms within the institutions. And, and the, 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 the improvement that has, I think, undoubtedly been driven by assessment appears to be plateauing.
4: I'm Maria Flores. I'm a defil student from the University of Oxford. And what I would like to know if, if, is if you have made a broader interpretation of, of what you say in, in terms of, of some kind of ideological struggle here between two notions of assessment, one much more related to a market-centered perspective related to control and to uh, put pressure into the system and another one that it's more related to the interest in generating critical thinking and generating uh, people who has a deeper learning
2: that, that exists and I think that the, the former of those, the market orientated pressure uh, we, we, we have had um, a couple of decades of this and it has been very successful in, in many ways but We believe that uh, that has come to dominate to the detriment of some of the things, that that, that your your other side.
1: Andrew, do you want to come in?
9: Andrew Watts from Cambridge. I'm thinking about why we have so much assessment, this question that that was raised earlier. Um, Going back to the TGAT report in the 1980s, there were four main purposes of education, which you've mentioned, some of them summative, formative, they had diagnostic, and then somewhat unwillingly, I believe, they put in evaluative. Now, in your model, there are five purposes, and the evaluative uh, has bifurcated into accountability and public policy. Mm -hmm. Isn't there an indication in there as to why there is so much assessment that it's become very heavily dependent on... Uh, and, and feeds that market, and perhaps this reference to the market is the market for a sort of political um, coinage, as it were, yes. that the schools are trying to win something from the public, and the politicians are trying to to put pressure on the schools and so on and that is the driver and one could say that the exams industry is actually a victim of that um centralizing tendency rather than than the the driver of it
2: yes you could you you, you... You could um, pursue that argument. I think you're absolutely right is, is in, in the growth of the assessment has come from a political desire to, ex- to exert control over the system and to improve the, sy- to improve the system. And you could argue that the exams industry has simply been the, the tool for that. Yes?
1: We've got a few questions waiting, but again, if anyone wants to jump in specifically please. on the question that's been asked, then please wave your hand vigorously.
10: Uh, Hi, Jill Wells from Ofqual. Uh, My first comment is, uh, there's all these wonderful things we're talking about. I've got, including stepchildren, five children. Um, They only have one chance at education. And I think one of the huge difficulties with suggesting changes to a system, if you change any system, there are a lot of bedding-in issues. Mm -hmm. And those... uh, So there's a... What do we do question of what do we do with the children that are in education at the time of the changes i think the other is a comment um, i'm at the moment i'm one of the project managers on the international study which off are running and as a, not even an emerging finding this is me having lots of different bits of paper going across my desk and it's become increasingly clear to me that each assessment system Appears very specific to the education system that it comes out of, which in turn is part of cultural issues in specific societies. It's about parental expectations, it's about societal expectations, it's about the structures in higher education. And I just wonder whether anybody's got any suggestions how, if we're going to import, if we're going to look at changing to this type of system, which has lots of great benefits. What do we do about all that other stuff that sits around it? Because I suggest if you you know, if, you, if you cut the left leg off a kangaroo or a French cockerel or a, whatever the a national animal of <laughs> Finland is and try and attach it onto the British bulldog, something's going to go horribly wrong. I'm Jill Grimshaw from Cambridge Assessment Network. It, it just made me wonder when you were speaking there, as to whether you found out are the all these different countries really happy with their assessment systems? Because
11: you know we're all kind of mixed sort of we've all got views about it. I think we could all yeah have different things to say about it. And uh, how can we possibly find something that we're all happy with? I don't know.
1: Cambridge assessment. I work for the international arm of our organisation and also as somebody who has come to this country and was puzzled by the lot of assessment going on and by people being frantic with league tables and rankings and this and this. And now I'm part of it and I think it's natural. So, so much for that. But my question would be, is there any evidence that you might have that different assessment models lead to better or worse results? When you look at school exams, and my country in Germany is completely different than here, but the other countries who have got their own model, they do better or worse. in, for instance, the PISA study. So, do you think that suggested uh, your model that you are suggesting, or the current assessment model in this country, leads to better results or not?
2: I don't have. I don't have the evidence. The evidence would be such that exists would be within this room, within the body of the audience here. Does anyone want to comment on that?
10: hi i 'm Ellen Mackay from Cambridge Assessment. Um, one thing that i've just thought thought of at the top of my head is that you listed several things that we as as the British public are quite obsessed with. One thing that might be an issue with this sy- proposed system is equality. You mentioned that the national curriculum had meant that everybody was studying roughly the same things. Would a change in assessment model where everybody is assessed within their own centre lead to accusations of postcode lotteries that are even worse than league table lotteries with schools at the moment?
2: Not, no, I don't think so, because I think that we have sufficient now other levers on the system, the Ofsted inspection regime being one, that, w- would, would, that would be sufficient to safeguard the, um, that to, to safeguard the provision so that a school could not opt out of the humanities or the sciences simply because that was the whim of the, of the institution. So, no, I think there are an, a number of other accountability levers now within the system. But I do think that the um, changes to assessment associated with the national curriculum did drive forward. An, an assessment, for example, is being used to drive English back, isn't it?
6: I'd I'd just like to query that slightly. Um, I mean, obviously, the outcome of assessments is being used to to determine the English back, but um, the English back is is very much something that has been decided by policymakers, isn't it, rather than something that's been um, driven by... Awarding bodies. Yeah. So I mean, the awarding, this,
2: the awarding body is the tool of the policymaker that decides we're going to have this. How are we going to ensure that it happens? Are we'll certify that those that particular package. I'm not saying English back is a bad thing, but or a good thing. But but that's how it that's how it works. It 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 seems to me.
4: I thought I'd just return to your question, which I think is hugely important for all of us, but. Do we really need the kind of assessment at the age of 16 that we've oh. been sort of oh. one generation has grown up to
2: For all, for all of the young yes.
4: people. Yes. I just think one element in this which we might need to add into the discussion is what universities are asking for. Increasingly, universities are looking to GCSE outcomes yes. as well as A-level. Yes. As a discriminator, in my previous incarnation, I got correspondence from aggrieved parents and and. Teachers whose students have been turned down because of GCSE outcomes, and they had outstanding A levels, um, and I think it's also because, for some, for your progression purpose, sometimes there's a confusion between whether people are looking for aptitude or some wider indication or attainment in specific subjects, and it's a sort of muddle. Um, yeah. And so, I, I do think that progression routes need to be clari- cl- to, to be clarified because there's a horrible risk that people make decisions for the best of reasons and then find themselves marooned. And that's got international aspects as well, because um, I remember a discussion with the Singapore Ministry when in some schools the very bright kids are skipping one stage of assessment at the age of 16, but they're terribly worried that they might not be able to get into universities in America or the UK because of that. So I think there's a real university issue in all of this as well.
2: There's a huge uni- uh, university issue in all of this. What you say about GCSEs I think is, borne out in, is clearly borne out in, 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 in practice and that's why we, we believe that somehow or other the university admission system or, <laughs> has to occur at the end, uh, after the certification of attainment at the age of 18 and not largely take place before that, and simply verified by, the, by the, the, the grades that come out.
8: So I've got a point following on from that, and one is the evidence that we've done into about A-level choice and how actually GCSE outcomes or GCSE performance is a significant um, um, deciding factor for students um, in terms of their A-level choice, so mm-hmm. um, there's a question about what might replace that in terms of providing students with guidance about what they might go on to study um, but the other point I wanted to make about assessment as a, as a policy uh, policy tool or a, as an accountability tool, when we saw the withdrawal of the Key Stage 3 testing programme which you might say do the same sort of thing with the GCSE programme if we feel it's unnecessary, um, the um, QCA continued to offer um, optional tests for schools to, to purchase and buy into and a huge um, majority of schools did continue to purchase these tests even though they were no longer being used as accountability measures and what was it you felt do you think might have been behind that was it because they had perhaps been deprofessionalized by having these tests provided for them and that they no longer felt confident in making their own judgments or were there other reasons do you think behind that decision for schools to, to part with their own money on tests that are entirely optional on, on you know external tests that are entirely optional
2: i think in part you're you're right is lack of confidence in going of, of of schools going forward the need for schools to pro- be able to provide evidence to ofsted and others um and the whole sort of milieu that they find themselves in but i wouldn't go as far as to say well Schools shouldn't do this. If, 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 if schools feel a need to assess students' progress at a particular point, they should be able to draw upon expertly devised assessments in order to help them do that. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a bad thing, but, but it is worth pondering, as you say, the reasons why that, uh, that happened.
11: Cambridge Assessment. Um, I'm not too long out of teaching now, just a couple of years. Um, And I'm just wondering how, what you're proposing is going to impact on on actual in-schools, on teachers. I think I understand and I can see the benefits of perhaps um, more internal assessments and and fewer uh, publicised materials maybe. But I'm just thinking of the teacher who is teaching 36 periods that week, has to prepare all those lessons you're perhaps getting to the stage where your preparation time is starting to exceed your teaching time um, and also perhaps now you've got perhaps up to 100 pieces of coursework to do and then you've got to moderate them. How, how is it going to work in schools? The, the, the system is going to have, to have to change, I think.
2: I think the system does have to change, but it would be more of a decision by the teacher and by the school as to when that assessment should be and what that assessment should be and some of those um and and some of the ultimate judgments that would be made would require external certification if the students finished a chunk of a big area of curriculum at at that time but i think it's to put the onus more back more on the teachers and on the institutions as to how to assess and when to assess and not to do so to an externally uh, Imposed timetable, or not to do so to to an externally uh, imposed timetable, is really quite as rigid as as we currently have.
11: And Daniels, um, Cambridge Assessment, Um, I would agree that uh, the key step with your uh, the answer about the Key Stage three um, assessments being used as evidence because that was it was not particularly a lack of confidence i was i would argue I'm, i've only just recently come out of teaching, but it was as a basis for for evidence um, and also that going to, going forward to your argument about w- working through those kind of assessments at particular ages rather than rather than a, a, a particular stages rather than an age, the assessments can be used in order to to see where where children are at a particular time of their development, rather than uh, uh, rather than moving the whole cohort yes. the cohort forward, yes. and I would very much agree with um, Isabel over there about the importance of looking at GCSE again. It's rather an historical um, fact that one of our reasons why we. I, I would argue one of the reasons why we assess at 16 is a is, is, um, historical fact that the raising of school-leaving age is mm-hmm. uh, very, very recent. I mean, I'm of your era as well, so I remember very well the, the Rosler stage yeah, where absolutely. children left at 14. Well, that no longer happens. Mm-hmm. And in a new era where children are going to be leaving at 18... And where um, there are there is a huge there is a huge um, ability of of um, for students to access resources from the internet and from um, all of the new technologies that are that are being involved that are involved. The idea of of assessing. Um, of assessing particular bodies of knowledge without the skill of being able to synthesise and evaluate uh, all of the all of the information they've got, and using a wider range of uh, of learning techniques in order to to build their own their own valued knowledge, then I think we're not we're missing an opportunity.
6: I do have a a query. I've just been trying to think about what you were saying earlier about how the quality assurance process might work within centres. And you were suggesting that that there might be one or two people within a centre who would become an expert assessor Mm -hmm. and that they would then be involved in the quality assurance of all assessment that took place within the centre. Have I understood correctly?
2: Yes, I think... I mean, I think there's a a need to, to... Strengthen teachers' professional expertise in their understanding of the teaching and learning, including assessment processes. I think for some teachers, a small number of teachers, becoming expert assessors in in that sort of generic sense is important because then they can be mentors to other teachers and they can be involved also in the quality assurance within institutions, and perhaps between institutions.
6: What I'd just like to to sort of query about that, and and I think I'm I'm trying to understand how it might work, is that I've been working for Cambridge Assessment for seven years, and during that time I've had experience of of a number of different subjects, and I think one thing that I've, I've come to realise is that perhaps the forms of assessment that are appropriate do vary from subject to subject, and the um, and and often are, are quite reliant not only on an expertise in assessment but on an expertise within the subject okay. area so so what i 'm sort of slightly struggling to reconcile is is how one or, or even two or three expert assessors within a center would be able to quality assure. Across all of the very many different types of subjects that a, that a center would offer, um, I mean perhaps that 's where the suggestion of centers working as, as little regional hubs or local networks would come in
2: yes, i mean I, I bow to your expertise in, in in that judgment but yes the, the, the logical way forward is, is is a more collaborative approach, but it is about putting. Enhancing the expertise that's in the institution in which
1: the youngsters are educated. I think that although there are still questions to be asked, it's now oh, five o'clock. Up, sort of I know, I was kind of judging the time <laughs> I needed to finish by the point I needed to be here. Yeah. Um, I think it just uh, remains for us to say thank you very much again for, uh, to Tony for a very provocative and interesting discussion session. Thank you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.